Good evening, Dog Nation. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Cover 4 Live. Feels like it's been a while since we've done this. The entire Dog Nation team back together, not really under one roof, but under one digital roof, if you will. And plenty to talk about here tonight. I've got Mike Griffith, I've got Connor Riley, I've got Jeff Sintel, and a whole lot of change on the way for college football. Some of that impacting Georgia. We will talk about a lot of that here uh, tonight and have a uh, really good time uh, doing all of that. I, I do want to begin with this. As the month of July shows up, uh, you'll see name, image, likeness, laws take effect in the state of Georgia. And now the NCAA really even opening the door for other states that don't currently have laws slated to go on the book. Uh, the NCAA opening the door for the schools within those states to still make money on their own name, image, likeness situation. So we have a brand new horizon on the way here for uh, college football. And I think it's going to be interesting to see specifically here at the University of Georgia. So to kind of get things started on Cover 4 Live tonight, I think one of the things that's interesting to find out is the Georgia players that we think are maybe best positioned to cash in on the new era, which we now live when it comes to the name, image, likeness stuff. Of course, there are, you know, reports out there. There could be, you know, Georgia players already set to maybe, you know, sign some deals at some point in time uh, when all this takes effect. But in terms of even more broadly than that, Mike, if I were to ask you, who, who do you think sets up the best to like really, really cash in on the new name, image, likeness horizon that's really here now for Georgia and the rest of college football? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same on every team for the most part. It's the quarterback. I mean, it's a focal point. It's every 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 game revolves around the performance, especially now at Georgia when you see so much uh, emphasis on the pass game with Todd Munkin's higher. With the receivers, you know, they, you know, Kirby's made a market effort to go out and, and get some great receivers, landing a guy like Eric Gilbert in the transfer portal, Jermaine Burton, a guy on the verge of a, a breakout season, tight ends that I think we're all really excited about. Uh, you know, Darnell Washington's such a force and in backs out of the backfield that can also catch the ball. You know, JT's numbers uh, from the time he stepped on the field last November 20th, 21st against Mississippi State. No one coming back in college football had better numbers from the time JT stepped on the field in terms of his quarterback rating. And, you know, against SEC competition, Georgia's, I think we're at 64% third down you know, conversion rate. Alabama led the nation at 59. So with JT under center, uh, Georgia was the most proficient offense in the country. And uh, I think there's a lot of excitement around JT. There's been a lot of offseason chatter around JT. He seems like the kind of guy – that someone wanting to endorse a product um, they'd want to cash in on because he's, he's kind of that gatekeeper guy that everybody talks about. So Jeff, on the one hand, I kind of agree with what Mike's saying. Obviously quarterbacks are typically grew up watching TV. It's the quarterback who always had the isotoner gloves commercial or whatever else. It just sort of seemed like quarterbacks kind of get that spot. And on the one hand, I kind of agree with Mike on that related to Georgia, really any other team. However, I, I do sort of think as charismatic as JT is and as, successful as I think is he set up to you know be for this upcoming season there is something to be said for Georgians liking Georgians not so they don't like JT Daniels but you know somebody who has a little bit more of a hometown feel maybe being able to cash in here do you think there will be a little bit of a home court advantage when it comes to name image likeness laws and for a Georgian playing for Georgia that he might have a chance to make some money off his his image in a way that you know somebody that's from kind of a different region of the country might not quite be able to cash in on Connor, why don't you jump in there and take, take that while we figure out what's going on with Jeff's. It's either on my end or Jeff's end, but I can't hear him. So, Connor, why don't you jump in for a second? Yeah, I think we've already seen a guy like uh, Brock Vandegrift, Jack Pudlesny, two Georgia natives reportedly get a deal with 
uh, Onward Reserve, a local Georgia company there as well. So I certainly think that is going to be something that plays into it. But I think when you're such a when you're a team like Georgia that has such a big following in this state, similar to like Ohio State and LSU, I think even if you're outside the the confines, if you're from the outside confines of, this, of that state, you're still going to have a lot of appeal and be a well-known name. I think of a guy like Kendall Milton, the guy everyone in this Georgia fan base knows, a guy who is very popular, a guy who I think knows how to use social media, has a very active following on there. People know who he is in, in sort of the online realm. And I think even though he's from Fresno, Clovis, California, I think he's going to be able to use that and put it into um, a, a potential spot for him to where he is earning sponsorship dollars scholar or, and money and things like that. So, uh, Jeff, why don't you jump in here now? Sounds like your microphone situation is taken care of. So why don't you hop back in on this discussion? So I still can't hear Jeff. Am I the only one? Yeah, I can't hear Jeff either. Yeah, so we'll see. Come on now. now Come on. Yes, I can hear you now for sure. Jeez. Um, let, let me see. Let's do this on third down. I was doing a silent count for the first two answers. Yeah, I like that. Um, so I'm kind of smelling what Connor's cooking there a little bit, but I think it's kind of more like I'm going to call a Georgian, a kind of a guy that fans have known they've been ingrained in for a while. I think it's got to be a combination of best player, most important player, and a likability factor, man. I think that's Jordan Davis. I think that's the guy that everybody identifies as, as maybe one of the core guys of the team. I mean, he's kind of going to take over that um, you know, leader, long-time, four-year guy that Richard LeCount had for the squad last year. And I, I think it's a guy like Jordan Davis. Now, especially starting the year now, if you can throw five sacks in September towards Adam Anderson's way or Nolan Smith's way, I think that would be a recalculation. You know, my Jerry Dogs fan who's watching us on a YouTube right now brings up an interesting point that in Georgia's relatively recent history, you know, you could go back and change a lot of – if name image likeness laws had been in place the way that they're about to be you know, for Todd Gurley who was suspended in 2014 because of some allegations of autograph sales and things like that I mean the fact of the matter is Gurley would not have been suspended for those games had you kind of waved a magic wand he's playing in 2021 all of a sudden now my understanding of all of this is that kind of thing would be permissible whereas in 2014 that was the kind of taboo thing you know trying to keep secret or or you know, uh, hope nobody found out that you were doing that. All of a sudden now, at least my understanding of this, Mike, maybe you can correct me on this a bit, but all of a sudden now it seems like you can kind of be out in the open doing that now, even even marketing the fact that your autograph is for sale. Sure. Cam Newton be at Mississippi State. He wouldn't have an Auburn national title. Uh, Dad would have been able to work out some kind of deal. Reggie Bush would still have a Heisman. Uh, there's a lot of what ifs and a lot of players suspended. Recruiting would be completely different because it is alumni businesses that are going to be allowed to create these endorsements. When we talk about Onward Reserve, kind of referenced that earlier, uh, you know, Callaway is a, a UGA alum. And uh, what's happened with that is it's been announced the five guys that he will approach on July 1st and Brock Vandegrift and Jack Podlesny being the two football players, along with Matthew Bowling and the baseball star from Oconee County, Connor Tate, along with Trent Phillips, the golfer. So they have this very particular sort of athlete that they're looking for. You mentioned that in-state guy. When we talk about some of the other guys, you know, when we talk about a JT Daniels, I think you're looking at, at more of a national type of sponsorship. Uh, and, and that's what's kind of cool about NIL is that I think you're going to see different deals for different levels of players and, and maybe something for everybody, you know, maybe the non-revenue athletes, you know, you got a lot of Georgia Bulldogs or former dogs that are going to be going to the Olympics 
and, and kind of spreading that out. And I agree about Jordan Davis. I mean, doesn't he look like the kind of guy that'd be eating soup in a commercial with his mom telling you that he used to eat, you know, chunky, you know, noodle soup when he was growing up. I think about the big smile he has on his face and, and the charisma that he puts out. But then I also think about Kirby with his arm fold and saying, don't eat too much of that. Cause I'll talk in the media about how you're 20 pounds overweight again. So, you know, there's all sorts of different dynamics that you're going to see at play with these NILs. So speaking of Kirby Smart, Connor, let me ask you this for a moment. Let's say that Kirby Smart was a part of this show right now. And I were to ask him as a fan, Kirby, what should Georgia fans cheer for? Should they cheer for as many businesses as possible to get involved, paying as many players as possible so that uh, Georgia players can be the richest of all the college football players and you can create the kind of buzz and pizzazz that goes along with that? Or should Georgia fans be cheering for a fence to be put up around the program and you don't have the distractions that come from whatever, you know, business wants to attach his or her name to some, you know, athlete social media. All of a sudden you don't have that distraction to worry about. Like how much do you think Kirby Smart wants this infiltrating the Georgia program? This is a thing that I think players have wanted for a long time. There have been classic examples. You mentioned Todd Gurley. A.J. Green is another. There have been times and time again of players being marketable and having the ability to earn money, and that's just not being the case. While you see coaching coaching prices, coaching salaries escalate, buyouts. Gus Malzahn got a $20 million golden parachute to go away from, from Auburn earlier this year. And so I think at the end of the day, while sure, Kirby Smart might not necessarily love that his players are now dealing with scholarships, if he's a good coach, which I think we all do here, he's going to set up the necessary protocol to help these guys both attract scholarship or attract sponsorship offers while also still keeping the main thing, the main thing he's going to find the way to strike the correct balance and both have this as a tool and use it as an advantage to the Georgia program that has a massive alumni base and a national sort of recognition while also at the end of the day, still keeping football, the most important thing among this Georgia program. But to zero in on this a little bit more tightly, do you think this is something that he's forced to embrace or forced to endure? I think you look at the transfer portal, you look at some of the other changes that he's seen and made in college football. Nick Saban has said it before. If you're going to, if you're going to change the rules, we're going to start using them for our advantage. And so I expect Georgia to do the same here. Although Jeff, to be fair here for a moment, when Nick Saban talked about this the other day, he wasn't exactly talking as much about the advantage that he hoped to conjure up when he spoke in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, for the uh, region celebrity program golf tournament he was a part of, he talked about more about wanting to establish a level playing field. It certainly didn't seem like, at least based on what Saban said publicly, that he was necessarily looking forward to cultivating any, any kind of advantage there, which was a little bit different type of tone than you sometimes hear ta- Saban take on issues like this. Yeah, I think it's going to be tricky. Uh, Tuscaloosa's media market and its uh, availability in the state of Alabama, businesses, corporations, I don't think that's a level playing field in Alabama's favor right now, unless you you get a lot of major boosters like concrete companies and stuff like that. Um, you know, Saban Man has even got an interest in several car dealerships around the state of Alabama. And it's very yeah, it's very interesting. These are high-end luxury as well. I would name but the brand names, Brandon, but, you know, Brands and Brandon don't really go too well on this airwaves. No free ads. So so here's what I'm hearing. Number one, I've heard a bunch of things on this lately, too. Uh, A lot of these players, they don't even know if they're getting approached yet. Like, I think everybody's trying to play by the rules. And like like for the onward reserve guys, for instance, I think they can announce they're going to approach guys. But I don't think any formal contacts can take place 
until July the 1st. That's the letter and staple of the rule everybody wants to abide by. Here's a sneak about what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of these young men starting up their own football camps in their communities. And it would be the, you know, the Connor Riley center camp or whatever in uh, Cobb County, Georgia, where they're going to say, hey, and, and, it, and Brennan, I think a lot of the way this will work with your intricate knowledge of high school sports, it's going to work through kind of booster club organizations where a lot of the early affiliates will be the same people that sponsor their high school team or whatever. And then local communities, those guys will be sponsoring football camps and a lot of the kids in the community will be opening up in their areas. And I think that's where a lot of this NIL will work. I think it will work at the local level and not like nationwide or regional or Metro Atlanta wide billboard campaigns for a lot of these guys. Yeah, that's interesting. Mike, let me ask you something about this too. I saw where today uh, the university of Florida, which at one point in time, the state of Florida is kind of out in the forefront, initially getting some legislation on the table here. I, I don't think that statewide legislation has, has been passed as of yet. So Florida, one of these schools is having to set up its own rules outside of state law at the moment. One of the things that Florida is saying is, hey, they don't want any kind of boosters facilitating this kind of thing. You know, they don't want this to, I guess I'm going to paraphrase here, to have the appearance of being sort of what might be in kind of an old school world, sort of an improper benefit, which leads me to say, Mike, and I'm asking this as a genuine question. I honestly don't feel like I have a good sense of exactly what is allowed, what is going to be permissible, and what all of this world is going to look like. Obviously, we've heard the rumblings of a potential like honor reserve type endorsement for a couple of players, things like that. But beyond that, and based on like what Florida's come out and said today, I have to say that I just still don't think I have a complete understanding of exactly what things are going to be like once all of this starts happening. And within a few days time now, it actually can start happening for real. Do you think you have a better sense of it? Yeah, uh, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and New Mexico are the states that go live July 1st with legislation that enables them um, to have these NIL deals. So what they want to avoid is NIL deals being used as recruiting inducements. They don't want to be, you know, hey, come here and, and get a deal with, you know, the Ford dealership. That's not that that's what they want to avoid, that the pay to play. Right. You come here, you get this endorsement deal. Um, as far as what they can do, it's, it's uncapped. Uh, it's untapped. There is no limit. Um, you want guys to drive cars around? I mean, you think these uh, Dodges look pretty good? You know, wait till somebody, you know, gets a Corvette uh, with a local Chevrolet dealer. You know, wait until, uh, you know, there's a Mercedes, you know, Mercedes plant. Uh, about 25 miles from Tuscaloosa, Jeff. I think you're underestimating uh, the level of corporate sponsorship that Nick and the, and the concept, guys. I mean, this is just laughable. The idea that Nick Saban is propagating a level playing. I mean, all he has done his entire career is try to tilt the field in Alabama's favor, whether it was putting 20 guys up in a coaching box or, you know, uh, putting waterfalls in the training room at Alabama. I mean, the, the concept that Nick Saban suddenly wants a level playing field. Um, in terms of what does he want to do, cap the amount of money? Does he want a salary cap for teams? Uh, it, it, what, so that somebody can work around it so that he can come up with, he can engineer some way to squeeze extra money out like he did with all the secondary violations when he was building his program? Look, any coach that tells you that he just wants to be on a level playing field is lying. They all want an advantage. They're all going to do what they can to get an edge. They're all going to look to take advantage of this rule and look for loopholes. But as far as what you're going to see, Brandon, it's the Wild West. I, you're not just going to see camps. You're going to see podcasts. 
You're going to see guys doing their own shows. Well, you're now you're going to see guys with their own I, Zoom I can't, I can't have these Georgia players stepping on my corner like that. Well, well, something to think about well, here, They'll be guys. on your show, too. Something to think about here, though, guys, specific to Georgia, is remember one one voice. That's the, that's the thing Kirby Smart has. That's the thing Nick Saban has. Uh, one voice for the program. He didn't even let his assistants uh, speak and represent the program. I, I think it's going to be very muddy waters if you – if you're going to see JT Daniels on a on a local sports talk radio on Monday morning during drive time, giving his opinions on you know this is how we won the game and this is previewing the next week's opponent, I think I think the main thing that changes my mind about a lot of this is, dude, what was it five years ago where if you were a if you were a Georgia graduate and you gave money to the school or you gave money to the athletic program, that was the NCAA's definition of a booster. Right. Remember that. That's the definition of a booster. And now things have changed so radically in the last two or three years where you could have boosters uh, having a construction company in Milledgeville and you can hire the kid from Milledgeville to be a spokesman. It's really radical change. Well, just to be very clear here for a moment, this is from Steve Berkowitz, USA Today. I referenced this a moment ago. He says University of Florida Athletics Department has issued its own set of NIL rules. And that's really I think what the NCAA is going to push for in light of what happened uh, you know, at the Supreme Court this week is for schools themselves to sort of set up their own rules and kind of govern themselves on this. He says that uh, uh, among them, f- the Florida rule is that boosters, quote, may not compensate or arrange compensation to a current or prospective intercollegiate athlete for his or her name, image, or likeness. That's Florida's own rules. They'll be kind of forced to police themselves on that. So we'll see if it actually plays out that way. But uh, that's language from Florida that's apparently come out today themselves on that and put themselves at a willing disadvantage i've got a uh, some magic beans i want to sell you somebody's gonna get a whole yeah, bunch of bean shorts in that closet here very very soon what wasn't dan mullen supposed to be policing himself when he got a show cause for having his prospects on his campus during the dead period for sure for sure so we'll have to leave that conversation there for now uh to me there's still some mystery and intrigue about exactly what this is going to look like when it all takes shape but there are a lot of folks very eager to get involved and so we'll see how that plays out this is cover four live my name is brandon adams and i'm happy to have the entire dog nation team on handy today i got mike griffith connor riley jeff Santel. this is actually the first time we've done this in a, a couple of weeks so we're happy to talk about everything related to georgia football as we head towards the start of the upcoming season and jeff Santel before the show began today kind of framed a topic i thought in a very interesting light the idea of as we as we look at the upcoming season, obviously you see Georgia prominently mentioned all the preseason top 25s near the top, a lot of the Georgia guys near the top of watch lists for awards or all-conference, all-American all lists, things like that. We'll actually have even more on that later on in tonight's show. But let's face it, for any team in any situation in any given year, nothing's ever going to be perfect. There are always going to be some unpleasant realities that you're forced to consider when you think about your own team's shot at winning a national championship. And Jeff phrased it before the show today as the idea of kind of a, a hard truth. I think that's a really interesting way of, of looking at all of this. Are there some hard truths facing Georgia that maybe fans at this point in time haven't yet fully considered? Jeff, since it was your topic idea, I'm going to give you a chance to kick things off. Do you see a hard truth still facing this Georgia team as we finish the rest of this talking season and get ready to start practice here coming up near the end of July? Yeah, and I'm going to try and phrase this so it doesn't end up uh, in the annals of Cover 4 Live with a 7-3 and three <laughs> season. Um, here's what I think, and maybe it's because I've rewatched this season 
especially G-Day, uh, the Peach Bowl, the last few games. Here's a hard truth. I think I need a greater sample size from JT Daniels to give him anything above an all-SCC type. I kind of feel that the recent rankings were spot on. I think, to me, before you get JT Daniels uh, elevated into All-American and Heisman consideration, I know those are great headlines, and I know that creates a lot of fervor in the program, and everybody gets excited, and they get a little fist-pumping action going on right now. For me, a hard truth for me is I think I still need to see a little bit more of a sample size from Georgia's offense to start projecting JT Daniels among the top five, 10 players in college football. And I think the good thing for Georgia fans with my first hard truth here is that the sample size will come against Clemson. Mike, what do you think about that? Four games from JT Daniels. Is that enough to make you a believer? I think I already know the answer to this, but I'll set the question up anyway. Well, I hope you know the answer because uh, JT's played more than four games in his career. If we're talking about the, 2010 High School National Player of the Year, the 2011 Gatorade National Player of the Year, um, a guy that was starting at USC, what should have been his senior year, that threw for over 300 yards on an undefeated Notre Dame team, a Texas team that Jake Fromm and Jim Chaney couldn't you know, make anything off of in the first half. And uh, I mean, this is a guy that's played a lot of football. You know, the proof was in the pudding for me. You know, when they scrambled up his offensive line, I mean, it was just a dreadful performance by Matt Luke and that offensive line. It was a dreadful performance by receivers that were running the wrong routes that had missed time on account of COVID. Uh, The running game had a hard time getting on track against Cincinnati. And, you know, JT took him down the field and set him up for the game-winning field goal from his own 20 uh, with no timeouts left on the clock in less than two minutes, you know. So I thought we saw a nice sample size. Uh, Missouri was a hot team that wanted to use George as a measuring stick. It was, what, about 28 degrees there, and, you know, they, they, they lit them up. Uh, Mississippi State sold out to s- stop the run, and you saw the first 400-yard passing game since Aaron Murray. Um, you know, who knows what the numbers would have been against South Carolina in the fourth quarter. <clears throat> as it was – you know, Vanderbilt didn't play, which was you know, Georgia, which was too bad because Matt Corral was like 30 of 34 for 500 yards and six touchdowns and no interceptions. And, you know, I, I look around the SEC and I don't know what Bryce Young's going to do yet. I know he's got a great coach and I know he's really good at the RPO, but, you know, Corral threw what, 14 interceptions last year? I, and I don't, I don't know. You know, he lost his number one and number two receiver. I have a hard time projecting a guy that threw 14 picks last year and lost his top receiver and his second receiver over a guy like JT that I think has good weapons, you know, not historically good like LSU and Alabama in terms of three or four first-round wide receivers or first-round running back. I don't see that on this year's team. But I see enough to think that this Georgia offense is is going to be pretty uh, proficient. Um, and, you know, and what JT did the last four weeks, he did after playing on the scout team all year. So it wasn't like he had – the benefit of an entire season to get in sync. I mean, he had two weeks of practice. So I don't know, Brandon, uh, you know, if uh, I don't know, I, I guess my question is uh, why would, why not? Why, what, what have you seen that would make you doubt him? I guess would be my question. At this Steve stage. Island says he expects JT to throw for 400 plus yards and four touchdowns against Clemson, which would be a major, major statement. I think Jeff's only point was he might like to have seen it for a little bit more. And I guess the one thing that I've said is 
while we didn't see JT play the two best teams in Georgia's schedule, Florida and Alabama, we also didn't see him play the two worst teams in Georgia's schedule either, which I think makes it a little easier to kind of multiply those four games that Daniels did play. As you said before, the Cincinnati defense was a good defense. That was a win for Daniels there, and he let him down the field to to create that there at the end. So I think there's I think I think there is certainly something that was proven by the four games that he had a chance to start. But, Mike, if I were to ask you now what your hard truth is for Georgia, what's the thing that you still think kind of lingers out there for the dogs right now? What would your answer be? Be the offensive line and the running back rotation. I, I, I'm a little worried about the running back rotation with NIL. Um, you know, I think one of the things about NIL that, that's dangerous and, uh, you know, talking with the Georgia swim coach, you know, the first thing he said is locker room chemistry. And it's one thing to stand back if, you know, all five running backs are getting paid NIL deals, but it's harder when the only one guy's got a deal in place. I mean, um, I wonder how that works now. Is everybody still cool? Was Zamir getting the nod uh, as the starter because of the seniority? Because, you know, he, or all of a sudden is it like, wait a minute, where's mine? You know, I need to get my, t- you know, you know, Connor made a great point. Uh, Kendall Milton is unquestionably the most popular player on the team. And I think most people would agree probably the most talented as well. That doesn't necessarily mean he should be the starter, um, but I think he's certainly got the highest upside. If I were going to buy stock and a player at a running back in the NFL, it would be probably Kendall Milton. But, um, you know, those, those are some of my, my truth is, but the offensive line uh, is really the big concern because if you can't protect JT, you're in trouble. Uh, I think you need to be able to run the ball effectively to protect him. And I'm not, I'm just not sure. I wrote one of my three big mysteries today that left tackle spot. And, and, and I don't know guys. And I, I guess I would throw it out there if you want to answer or ignore it, but you know, I, I keep hearing put the five best guys out there. Well, does that necessarily mean you got the best left tackle playing left tackle? You know, because I'm not sure that Jamari Salyer is the best left tackle, but maybe having him at left tackle enables Georgia to get the five best guys out there. I, I'm not sure who the best left tackle is. I mean, Kirby said in the spring that Xavier Trust was going to keep getting the majority of the reps until, you know, otherwise proven. And and he is the projected guy technically, right, which with Kirby means nothing because there's no depth chart. And he's not even going to probably tell us who started left tackle, you know, till you know, five minutes before the game if he could wait that long. But is it Trust? Uh, is it Amarius Mims? Again, a, probably the most talented offensive lineman on the team if I'm buying stock. And somebody's NFL career, it's going to be Amaris Mims. Is he going to be ready to play left tackle? Broderick Jones and Centel's Intel told us this long ago, this guy's got great feet. He's got the best feet on the team. Is he powerful enough to play left tackle? Or or do they just go default with Jamari Salyer against Clemson because he played there nine games? So to me, I, I don't like that kind of juggling. I liked it a lot better when he said, well, Andrew Thomas is coming back and Ben Cleveland's coming back and Solomon Kenley's coming and, and you knew what you were going to have. I like the great wall, right? These guys, uh, I think if you could pick the starting lineup, it'd be a great call. There's no great wall. Before I hear from Connor Riley and get a couple comments, Dino Calvino says Amarius Mims is her favorite. Uh, Mike mentioned the running game. A lot of folks weighing in on that. Travis McCullough saying he's ready to see Kenny McIntosh. Chris Slim White says Amir White's going to be a beast this year. Isaac Cruz says I'm all for Amir White as a starter. He blames the offensive line for last year not seeing what he thought was the most dynamic possible performance from Zamir White. Uh, Connor, you've talked offensive line before. If I had to predict, I might assume that's the direction you're going with this topic here right now. Would I be correct in doing so? I took two truths instead of one. So I'm going to go with the defensive backfield, especially that first game against Clemson. 
I'm still not sure how good this is. This backfield, the secondary is going to be. I mean, you only have to look back to Florida last year and not being on the same page, not having great communication. There were a lot of guys that hadn't played together in that secondary that day. And they got blowtorched by a Florida team that had time to prepare with that extra bye week or with the bye week going into it. Or I guess they didn't have a bye week because they changed the schedule. But they were prepared and ready for that Georgia secondary, which was without Richard LeCount, loses Lewis Seen halfway through the second quarter and had to juggle some things around. Georgia secondary, especially at the corner position, is going to be looking a lot different than it did a season ago. How does Tyke Smith factor into that secondary? I, DJ Uingola is as talented as maybe any quarterback in the country. I, you know, he has, in my opinion, just as much as an argument to be a, a first-team All-American guy potentially as JT Daniels does at this point in time. So you have all that juggling around. You're playing against really talented receivers that Clemson has. That first game, that secondary, despite bringing in Darian Kendrick, despite bringing in Tyke Smith, despite having – five-star Keely Ringo, the number one defensive back in the country in the 2020 class, despite having another fringe top 100 defensive back in Jalen Kimber. I, I think the secondary is still going to struggle early on, especially against what I think should be a pretty good Clemson passing offense. Jeff, let me bring you back in on this, on what Connor said a bit and what Mike said a bit. First of all, on the offensive line, you know, Mike asking the question of, hey, you know, is it the best five or is it the best five for the each position? And he mentions left tackle in particular. This is one of the reasons why I haven't been as worried about the offensive line situation as maybe some other people should have been, or maybe as much as some people would say I should be, because my assumption is going to be that the left tackle that Georgia starts against Clemson or anybody else won't be any worse than Jamari Salyer, because if that person was worse than Salyer, then they would just start Salyer in that spot. I think Salyer played fine last year, uh, if not quite you know, best in the country type level, uh, certainly at a very high level. It's one of the reasons why he's getting so many preseason accolades right now. As far as the defensive backfield that Connor mentioned, everything that he just said is valid. It's all legitimate concerns, and Uwe Ungle with that collection of receivers and offensive talent that Clemson has, they certainly have the ability to exploit. But at a certain point in time, you just sort of have to say, you know, you've recruited Jalen Kimber, you've recruited Keely Ringo, you've brought in, you know, Tyke Smith as a transfer, you brought in Darian Kendrick as a transfer, you've literally taken him off the Clemson roster and put him on your own team. At a certain point in time, with all that talent, you got to just go out there and put a secondary together. I mean, I, I get there's a chance that it might not work out. I, I get there's a chance that could still be a weakness. But, you know, Kirby Smart's a defensive guru, specifically when it comes to defensive backs. I got to have you use all this talent put them together this summer, develop a little chemistry with them. That's enough raw materials, enough natural resources that in my mind, you ought to be able to find a secondary from that group that's able to play. Yeah, Brandon, a lot of points there that you made that I'll try to unravel a few. I kind of look at it this way. Where are the players at? There's inexperience across the secondary, especially when you start thinking about, you know, who's the third and fourth defensive back in the nickel packages. Um, Yet it's added a little bit by Tyke Smith, and then Darian Kendrick, and those guys are experienced players, but they're not experienced players in Georgia's system. I would say maybe the greater worry concern, I think the offensive line will be fine. I think they've got the players. I think we've all touched on the point. Everybody's worrying about left tackle. Everybody's worrying about other spots. I think Salyer is an insurance policy right there. If, if Jamari Salyer, if, if, if they can't get trust where he needs to be and they can't get Amari S. Mims already where he needs to be, fine. Then you move Jamari over there. I think that's an easy fix. I think the harder fix is the secondary, especially going against a very talented Clemson team that's going to spread the ball around and fire it out in a lot of places. I think when you look at those two, two, two extremes, I think the, the more area of concern for me would have to be the defensive backfield because even though when you have experience there, uh, a lot of that experience is not experienced at Georgia yet, which kind of adds to the overall picture. Cisco Hurtado mentions the questions facing the offensive line. Mike, another quick point on this, and then we'll move on. 
The other thing that makes me feel, like I said, I, I don't want to oversell this because I obviously do you know, view it as a potential concern. One of the things that makes me as a fan feel a little bit better about it is, you know, during the spring and certainly based on some of what you saw in G-Day, you also kind of see the emergence of Tate Ratledge right now. Georgia always seems to have that sixth man offensive lineman. I'm not saying Ratledge is not going to start. He may may very well start. But but certainly Ratledge seems like he's kind of blossoming right now at a very good time where you know he's either a starter for you at guard or sort of a super sub across the board that – all of a sudden, he's kind of taking on the look that that George has had before, whether it's been Cade Mays in the past or, or Jamari Salyer at one point in time uh, prior to his insertion as a full-time starter, where you have that little bit of extra depth, a, a sixth guy that you really trust and feel like you can play at any point in time. SVP, Senator Von Prun, maybe an example of that there as well, that there's enough emerging depth right now that I'm really not dealing with a whole lot of sleepless nights on this offensive line. And boy, I hope I'm not, Mike, uh, disappointed once the season gets here. Yeah, you know, throwing Warren Mer- Erickson into that mix and that interior line at guard and Justin Schaefer came back to play one guard spot. And between SVP and Warren Erickson and Ratledge, you know, those three guys, there's two spots and certainly a lot of depth, plenty of depth. But, but you know, I guess I talk I- – I think about the first game. It's it's almost like there's different seasons, right? right? The Clemson game is the first like winner take all. You know, like everything's about Clemson, and then you kind of get to breathe a little easier. And I know Jeff's a a big you know UAB watch out for UAB guy, but I I just think you win that game in two and a half quarters, and your starters are out. You know, and, and no disrespect to UAB, I just feel like George is so good and so powerful at the offensive line. But against Clemson, you know, you're talking about a defensive line that's got four former five stars. I mean, these guys were second in the country in sacks last year. Now, granted, they were in the ACC, and that had something to do with it. But this is going to be quite the test. And, you know, if we go back to the G-Day game and we watch how that Georgia offensive line was really handled, I think you're going to see more of that. I think that the Georgia offense is going to look a lot like it did in G-Day. I think you're going to see JT laying the ball off a lot to receivers. JT does not want to get it. Look, the knee's good now, right? He's got a little mobility. Last thing you want is him slowed down again. I mean, he did all that last year on a, on a bad knee. He couldn't even plant properly. So, um, yeah, to your point, B.A., there is plenty of depth. And, listen, by the end of the year, I'm sure Matt Luke will have that offensive line rocking and rolling, right? And it was nothing but kudos for Coach Luke against Baylor when he plugged guys in, albeit Kate Mays didn't have the best game in the world, but they were very effective. Last year, I think the, as crazy as it sounds, I think the Cincinnati defense was better than the Baylor defense. And the Baylor defense had set some school records. But that Cincinnati defense, that was a nasty group of guys. And they really outplayed George in the trenches. And what's going to happen in that Clemson game is really going to be determined up front, Brandon. So to your point, uh, I agree that, yes, eventually, by the time you beat Alabama or you beat LSU or AM or whoever you beat in the SEC championship game, that offensive line is going to be ready. But for the Clemson game, I think there's going to be some holding your breath and, and, and a lot of those passes get rid of the ball quickly early in the season. Thomas Tyson, JC, and some of the folks over there on YouTube having a pretty interesting conversation about uh, Brock Vandegrift right now while we're having uh, this discussion here on air. So it's kind of fun to watch all that take place. Jeff, is your hand in the air, or are you? Uh, I can't tell. I can't tell if that's like your poker tail, and you're looking to get involved or not. Yeah, I just want to say one. I just want to say one thing. Uh, here's a. I guess this would be one of our Instagram hot takes. I don't think Georgia's uh, season hinges on the defensive backfield being excellent. I don't think it hinges on the offensive line being excellent. I think very good to great is fine there. The thing that I think we should mention in this topic is the receiver core. 
because I think for Georgia to be great and to go where everybody needs to go, Georgia's receiving core has to be excellent. And that's going to call for renewed health from Marcus Rosemey, perhaps emergence of George Pickens. It's going to call for Dominic Blaylock getting back in the mix. It's going to call for another step of Arian Smith. To me, there, there's not enough given exclamation point players yet. Valified, verified, credentialed, you know, war daddies, as you hear, like to hear people talk when you go into a ball game with. I think when you look at more questions about a unit that definitely has to click and be on all cylinders, I think I got to bring up the wide receiver position as well. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. It's a great transition to our next topic here on Cover 4 Live because one of the things that we've written about at DogNation.com, I say we, one of the things that y'all have written about at DogNation.com, I have read these stories. I've, I've talked about it on Dog Nation Daily plenty is some of the preseason All-American lists that have come out, preseason All-SCC lists that have come out. Athlon, Phil Steele has been out there on the All-Conference side of things. Uh, Walter Camp came out last week with some preseason All-American stuff. And you see, you know, some representation by Georgia on some of these lists. Some of the same names pop up on every list. There were a couple of interesting outliers on a few of those lists there as well. And, you know, Jeff mentioned the wide receiver position in particular. That's one where at the end of the season, I definitely think you have to have a lot of representation if George is going to go where dog fans hope they can go this year. So, Connor, let me let you begin on this topic. Do you think right now George is represented well enough on preseason All-SCC, All-American list, top high-end expectations for the most talented players in this roster? Right now, does Georgia look like a national championship team on the basis of the preseason projections that are out there for the individual players? into this year a little bit of the fact you look at some of the most talented players on this team Trayvon Walker is a guy who hasn't played a whole lot Adam Anderson was sort of in a rotational role last season Nolan Smith as well those are guys who they're not going to appear on these first team lists at the beginning of the season it's just because they don't have the reps or as of right now their name recognition you say Jermaine Burton there as well but I, I expect those guys to be there at the end of the season my sort of question just to start the season with these preseason projections is where is the star power on this team? Where are the one-on-one difference makers? Uh, you know, you think back to that Walter Camp one, four guys from Georgia make the team, but none of them are on the first team. You know, I, JT Daniels, if you're giving me JT Daniels in the field for a first-team All-American quarterback, I'm just naturally going to take the field because uh, we still don't know if Kirby Smart's really going to open up this offense and allow it to be in a way where he puts up the kind of numbers to end the season there. So, you know, I thought George Pickens was absolutely going to be one of those guys, but who knows if he even plays at all this season. Jordan Davis is a great player, don't get me wrong, but he's got to still show up in the pass game and be an impact pass rusher if he's going to be a true star defensive tackle as opposed to just being the best run defender in the country. They have a lot of really good players, this Georgia team, and that's I think, is reflected on some of these preseason All-American lists. But how many true stars does this Georgia team have? And granted, they do play a lot of guys, keeps a lot of guys happy, but sort of the reason Jermaine Johnson left. He wants to be a star, and I think to win the national title – you have to find that right balance where you have legitimate stars and you also have enough guys where you were able to have good depth and play guys consistently. Mike, when you look at the magazines that have had their all-conference lists preseason, the websites that have had their preseason All-America lists, what do you think is interesting in terms of who did make it or maybe who didn't make it? What jumps out to you more than anything else? I think Connor makes a lot of really good points there. You know, last year that guy would have been Richard LeCount if not for the motorcycle accident with the interceptions and the tackle numbers. He was in a position to be productive. And, you know, the, and, and to, to Connor's point also, and I know, Bia, you and I have talked about it, you know, Jordan Davis could be the best nose tackle in the country and only have two sacks. 
And, and two sacks doesn't translate to all, you know, because a lot of people don't. I mean, let's let's be honest. And I do a freshman All-American team every year. It's incredibly hard to try and watch film of everyone adequately enough to say, you know, like there's always some, for example, there's always some Mountain West linebacker, 160 tackles. The Alabama guys got 87. Well, what's the difference is in the Mountain West, the guys on the field for 90 to 100 snaps a game, and Alabama is going to ball control you to death, and their guys on the field for half that much. So the numbers aren't equal. Uh, something else I wanted to point out, uh, BA, just to, you know, kind of a, a recap of the last segment. We basically said everything needed work except for the front seven and the special sure. teams. And, sure. and and by the way, do we really know how N'Kobe Dean's going to come off of that torn labrum? I think that's one of the concerns I have. He better be. I think N'Kobe Dean, to answer your question, tie it together, I think N'Kobe Dean could be that guy. His tackle numbers were crazy stupid until the Mississippi State game. If you go back and look, he had two or three games in a row where he had double-digit tackles. And I think he got injured in that game, and I think he played the next two games tentative, and he was kind of getting subbed for a little bit more. And then he just laid it on the line against Cincinnati, knowing he was having surgery. Made a game-saving tackle, by the way. Um, I think he could be that guy. What do I think is interesting uh, well, the running back by committee hurts you, right? You look at all SEC, you got to go all the way down to fourth team, RBU, before you get to a Georgia running back. Six running backs clearly identified better than your starter, right? And then when you get to Zamir White, we don't even know if he's the best guy, the best running back back there. Kendall Milton with the Ks, Kenny McIntosh. James Cook could end up being the most effective guy if they throw it as much as we think. So a lot of depth there. Uh, same thing with tight end, right? As much as we're impressed with Big Darnell Washington, we know Brock Bowers, uh, Centel's Intel Unicorn from his recruiting class. He's going to be doing some things downfield. Oh, and don't forget John Fitzpatrick. He's six foot seven, and he may have done more interviews than he has catches to this point. But I think he's going to be a security blanket for JT Daniels. So the ball's going to get spread. The biggest oversight to me, though, based on everything I'm hearing, is Jermaine Burton. You know, on that JT California trip, uh, Burton stayed out there the whole time. Now, he missed a part of spring because of the hyperextended knee, but all the intel that I'm getting, he is having one whale of an offseason, and he's going to do some great things at the Z. At the X, you got Rosemey, who's looking good, by the way. His comeback is going really well. Uh, he's looked really good. Him and Eric Gilbert are swapping out there at the X. So I think you're going to see really good numbers for both. But I'm starting to get a little bit more bullish on Jermaine Burton based on everything I'm hearing. And, and, I, and I also wouldn't be surprised if Kiaris Jackson working out of the slot doesn't put up 50 or 60 catches, you know, and they may be of the seven and the nine yard variety, but he's a tough guy that's going to catch it, put his head down and get a few extra yards. I want to challenge you on one thing that you said a moment ago, Mike, you talked about Jordan Davis and the fact that an interior defensive lineman sometimes doesn't put up big stats, which is certainly true. If memory serves, I don't believe there was an interior defensive lineman taking the first round of last year's NFL draft, but there were a couple from the SEC taken in the NFL draft prior to that. And Guys like Javon Kinlaw at South Carolina and Derek Brown and Auburn did put up big statistical numbers. And I guess, Mike, what I'm getting to is, and I think you know, you know, I'm as big a believer in Jordan Davis as anybody is. I think he's an incredibly viable player for Georgia. But my expectation, Mike, for him this year is to be a part of the uh, stat sheet. You know, a double-digit tackle for loss season, more than the two-and-a-half sacks that he had in the last full season that Georgia played in 2019. Two-and-a-half is not a bad number necessarily for an interior defensive lineman, but it may not be a first-round draft pick type number. He may need 
five, six sacks, something along those lines. So while I think that Davis can be valuable to George as a space-eating nose guard, stopping the run, the things that he's done before, if he achieves his full potential at Georgia, then I don't think it's unfair to say, are you capable of putting up stats the way that Ken Law did for the Gamecocks a couple of years ago and the way that Derek Brown did for Auburn there as well? I actually don't think that's an unfair question to ask for a guy like Davis, who I would think came back for that very reason. Well, you know, and I think I think Connor touched on this, or maybe it was Jeff, but you know, part of part of what happens here is because Georgia plays so many guys, you know, Jordan Davis, because he's so effective as a run stuffer on first and second down, you go with a little bit different package there on third down, whether it's your NASCAR package or your speed package or whatever you want to call it, uh, where maybe Jordan Davis isn't out there on third down on that pass rush down because you want to be a little bit lighter and you want to have someone that's a little bit faster back there. Um, you know, or on the on the field trying to make those plays. So, um, you know, that's kind of where, you know, I'm looking at, you know, Javon Kinlaw's senior stats right now, Brandon. He had six sacks. I mean, and, and he's probably a three-down player. That'd be a um, huge I, just, I, mean, I mean, six sacks for Davis would be a huge year, though. You'd agree with that. That'd be If Jordan Davis has six sacks, yeah. I'm going to be strutting to work like that Vince McMahon gift. If he's not playing, if he's on, if he's if he's doing on first and second down, but when you got guys like uh, Devontae Wide and, and Jalen Carter and uh, other young guys emerging, you know, it's the fourth quarter and you're blowing out UAB or you're blowing out, you know, some of those other chicken schools on Georgia's schedule. You're not playing Jordan Davis in the fourth quarter of those games. You're going to keep that big man rested. I just don't. So maybe he could have those numbers if you were going to let him beat up on some of those sorry teams that Georgia plays at home this year. Um, you know, you're, you're going to see him every every bit of Clemson that he can get. You're going to see him every bit when you play the Gators, but you're not going to air him out against UAB. I mean, I don't even know if he plays the second half. That's an opportunity to play these young guys. That's what was missing last year. That was the problem with last year, the front-loaded schedule. So Georgia didn't get to play and build depth. And so by the time they played Florida, they were gassed, man. Remember that Kentucky game? You know, they wanted to slug it out. They had three or four guys knocked out of the game. And then, you know, Richie goes for a motorcycle ride and half your defense is messed up when you play Flynn. And then Lewisine gets ejected in the second quarter. So my point is it's a little bit different for Georgia than South Carolina. You know, it's a little bit different when you're playing for championships and you want to conserve these guys. You don't want to use, yeah, it's great. You could leave them out there. You could beat up UAB and have five sacks. But you, but why bother? You want to get some young guys some experience, keep Jordan Davis healthy. So to your point, uh, yeah, he probably could if you were going to play, if it was the NFL, but, but it's not. It's about conservation. It's about developing talent. It's about keeping your guys healthy. So I would put the over-under. You didn't ask this, but I'm going to go there. I'm going to put the over-under on four sacks for Jordan Davis this year. If he has four sacks, then he's well in line to be, I would say, a uh, first-round pick. I just think he needs more production than he had mm -hmm. in, in his last full season. Uh, certainly four sacks would be a big step in that direction. And for a Georgia team number, uh, that probably helps you out there as well. Let me just squeeze in one more quick point on this topic, and then I want to talk about something else in the time we have remaining. You know, Connor – Here's the thing that I guess concerns me a little bit. I'm going to kind of combine this topic with the hard truths topic we uh, addressed a little bit before. I, I totally agree with something you said a moment ago. Hey, you know, right now the country may not know who Trayvon Walker is, but they may very well find out by the time this season is done. You could say the same thing about Adam Anderson. Honestly, I haven't given up on Nolan Smith in the conversation like that either. I think this could mm -hmm. still be a big year from Nolan. But it is fair to say that in the absence of Aziz Ojolari, such a big part of what Georgia did a year ago, we've talked about the Cincinnati game a couple of times now, Georgia mm -hmm. probably doesn't win that game last year if it's not for Aziz Ojolari and the effort that he put forth. Certainly on the basis of 
preseason all SEC lists right now, preseason all American lists right now. On the basis of that, if there's any wisdom of crowds whatsoever, the folks who fill out these ballots and make these decisions right now don't necessarily see an obvious heir apparent to Aziz Ojolari on the Georgia roster, even if collectively all those guys are pretty good. I think the media is wrong about that, but it is at least something that gives me a little bit of pause. Ojolari wasn't wasn't first, second, or third team all preseason SEC a year ago when he had five sacks coming out of the 2019 season. You know, again, I think a lot of this comes down to hype and Nolan Smith has not lived up to the hype that he entered college with yet. I think that's a fair assessment when you come in as the number one overall recruit, but that doesn't mean that he can't be a productive player because I still believe in Nolan because he just played up behind the best pass rusher in the SEC last season. And so I, I think that's more an indictment of why he hasn't produced to the level that he has just yet. And when you lose that many sacks and move on and you don't exactly know what you have in Nolan Smith, a guy who somehow did find his name on the preseason list a season ago. I think that works a little bit against Nolan Smith in that case. So I still think this Georgia pass rush is going to be really good. Obviously they're not as deep as they were a season ago. So if they do pick up injuries, that'll be something to watch and monitor. But in terms of just coming off the edge, pure speed rush, Adam Anderson could get to 10 sacks if Georgia choose to use him in, in, in that way. I think Nolan Smith is going to be a heck of a player and have a really good season this year. So while the Georgia pass rush, again, the biggest thing is just it's not as deep as it was a season ago. I still think there's a lot of talent in that room. Yeah, I think that 10 number is kind of interesting. You know, this is not, I think, the kind of team that's going to have what we've seen in the SEC over the course of the last decade where some guy just explodes for this huge number. But if you want to get to 40-plus, which has kind of always been kind of a number I've had in my mind for a full season's worth of Georgia sacks, and uh, as has been pointed out, had Georgia played a full season a year ago, they certainly would have had a very good chance to eclipse that mark last season. You know, you do, you do need to kind of have that guy leading the way with about 10. Mike mentioned the idea of Jordan Davis contributing about four. I think that'd be a huge step towards getting there as well. It is a little bit of a pass rush by committee, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but someone does kind of have to step up and lead the way for you on that regard. It'll be fun to watch and see how that progresses once the season actually does begin. For now, though, there is more time left in the offseason before the season gets here, and it's already been one of the most interesting offseasons we've seen in college football, as we mentioned off at the very top of the program, that we are on the doorstep of the implementation of name, image, likeness, laws in some places, rules in others, but NIL is here. It seems like it's a foregone conclusion that we're about to have the announcement of a 12-team college football playoff that's going to take place in some form or fashion, maybe as soon as a couple of years from now. And then there's also some whispers and some suggestions that, uh, based on what the Supreme Court did this week, that one day the whole concept of amateurism in college sports all the way around could essentially disappear. When you look at all the big news that's unfolded over the course of the last few months, Jeff, what do you think the biggest offseason storyline around college football has been thus far? I think it's got to be name, image, and likeness. Uh, that just, you know, the one-time transfer rules, uh, other things like that. I think the name, image, and likeness thing is the biggest offseason storyline. And I, I say that, I really wanted to say, being a recruiting reporter, that the biggest offseason storyline for me, and, and, and really with a lot of college football, is just a return to getting guys on campus. It feels... Hope yeah. springs eternal. It feels like spring. And, and it's different at Georgia because Georgia, this kids on campus thing allows Georgia to see all the upgrades, all the new facilities. I think one of the chief things we hear from our readers and our audience, and they're asking this question at the University of Georgia, is why in the world have they not had an athletic department video, an athletic department release? Now, I get that about recruiting. You want to save the Christmas morning feel for a lot of these guys. 
But I mean, we're almost at the end of June right now. And I think it's a point where a lot of the new toys, I think a lot of the fan base wants to see, like we keep writing these stories and we keep putting tweets or Instagram posts in our stories. And they're like, Oh yeah, but I want to see more. They want to see that, that waterfall with LCD in Georgia. They want to see that jumbotron above the weight room. They want to see the, the hot tubs with, and the cold tubs and with the four TV screens around. They want to see the saltwater pod where you can only get like a light day of sleep or a light night of sleep. And for every 15 minutes you lay down and soak in that pod and sleep, it's like three hours of sleep to a regular person. I think everybody wants to see all that. Um, but for me, the biggest off-season storyline uh, to condense my point uh, it's got to be uh, the name, image, and likeness because it's going to change the way a lot of players are recruited. It's going to change the way a, lot, the way a lot of players are compensated during their college years. So I think your point about the return to visits is certainly an excellent one. Mike, I do have to admit, though, that in comparison to the implementation eventually of a 12-team playoff, we're not there. It's not a guarantee that we will be there, although at this point in time, it certainly seems like the direction the sport's moving. I actually have a hard time believing that the – name image likeness discussion and what that's going to look like once it's real world. I have a hard time imagining that's going to dominate the conversation more so than the idea of a 12 team playoff. Had there been a 12 team playoff the last few years for Georgia, the feeling at the end of the seasons would have been dramatically different. I don't mean that Georgia would have gone on to win a national championship in one of those years. I just mean it would have had a chance to win a playoff game as opposed to playing in a bowl game that, you know, some people treat as as meaningless. I think the entire mood around the Georgia program would have been different than that. If you're going to make it a side-by-side comparison for me between NIL and 12-team playoff, I think the 12-team playoff changes the conversation among the average college football fan more so than name image likeness is going to. I agree, and I'm going to circle back and explain why. But first of all, Jeff, you talk about the saltwater pod. What about the the Brandon Adams pod where the guys can go in there and listen to Dog Nation daily every day at 10 o'clock and from the pod? Oh, did, did they not have that in the football facility yet? If the they Brandon don't, Adams? it's on the way. I mean, that's when you're in trouble. That's where they go. That's where they put them. <laughs> so, that's really kind of, so, no, I, you know what, Brandon? I was going there. I, I absolutely think that the 12, you know, Kirby Smart said it. So it must be right. No, I got it. I got to agree with Kirby that, you know, and, and for Kirby and the poker game that he was playing with us when we would say, so you're doing this, these games, these home and well, you know, it's, I'm out of line talking about that. I just, we just want to play good. Game. Of course, Georgia was as far back as 2019 was scheduling these home and homes, knowing Kirby had the foresight, you know, to schedule these home and homes because he knew the playoffs were expanded and he knew that schedule strength would play a role. You still got these clowns on the football playoff committee. Thank goodness Georgia Tech, Florida, and Oklahoma have rotated off. But welcome Notre Dame to the room now, um, by the way. But I absolutely think it makes a huge difference if Georgia is in the playoff the last four years, which they would have been, and 2017 in particular. And Alabama fans never want to hear it. They want to shout me down every time I bring it up. But if you would have applied the 12-team playoff in 2017, instead of Bama playing one less game, which they didn't even have to play in the SEC championship game, they essentially got a bye. The way it would have looked, they would have played host to an undefeated Central Florida at home in Tuscaloosa in round one while Georgia had a bye. Now, Georgia, I think, still would have played Oklahoma, but probably not in California across the country. And they certainly wouldn't have been at the disadvantage that they were playing the extra game against Alabama. So I like it. I like that. I'm sure you would have had Georgia at Cincinnati 
And some people might go, well, that might have been enough for Cincinnati. No, because Eric Stokes wouldn't have sat out, and neither would Monty Rice. If you're in a playoff, these guys aren't sitting out. That's a game changer, and that's part of why I like this. You know, originally I was against it. I'm a traditionalist. I like the Bulls. But Mark Rick made a very good point when he talked about a seismic shift. He said, you know, you've already got a few guys saying, I don't want to play. We're coming to the time where teams are going to say, we don't want to play coach. And last year they used COVID as an excuse. But moving forward, who wants to go to the pool and weed eater bowl, right? Those teams are going to go, hey, we're out, man. We're not interested in getting a video game console. I got 100 of those for my name, image, likeness deal already, coach. And as for these Lamborghini seats that are in the locker room, Jeff, I'll be impressed when they're driving the Lamborghinis in for the – that's what they're going to have at Bama. Saban's going to say, Lamborghini seats? Son, I'll give you a Lamborghini to come play. You know what we did for Julio Jones back in the day? No, this name, image, likeness is going to blow up. But I'll tell you, Jamie Chadwell at Coastal Carolina said something pretty funny. He said it's not going to make a big difference for these big schools because they're already paying them. He said it on the record. So I, I kind of agree that, you know, the rich, they, these guys already got it pretty. But playoffs changes everything, changes scheduling model, changes, as you said, Brandon, the way we think about last season, changes the participation. All the regions are involved once again. Um, that could be a level playing field. Um, so I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board with you, B.A. I'm going to go with the 12-team playoff as well. I think Tanil Calvino makes a really interesting point on Facebook. Before I share what she said, Connor, let me let you answer this question. What do you think the biggest off-season storyline is right now? You know, Blue Check Brigade media, big media, you guys, transfer portal, NIL, playoff potential. That's not going to be it for at least another two years. You guys should watch the NBA playoffs because – Fans are back in the stands, and that, to me, is the biggest offseason yeah. storyline. You look just at the NBA a season ago. It's so much weirdness, so much change, having fans back in the stands. And I'll admit, I was wrong. I didn't think there'd be a big, big impact with fans not being in the stands a season ago. I was categorically untrue. I was big wrong there. You look at it this season, how different even the NBA has changed out. The final four teams from a year ago in the NBA won a grand total of zero second-round playoff games. I do think it's sort of been glossed over because, again, the – country has sort of moved on from the pandemic for the most part, but we're going to have a full capacity stadium in Clemson, which I think just knowing the Georgia fan base might be a little bit more Georgia than Clemson. Uh, we're going to have full stadiums against Tennessee uh, down there in, in Jacksonville, where I know some people say that it's a Florida home game. It's a 50, 50 split in terms of tickets doled out. So you're going to have fans back in the stadium. And I think that's absolutely going to play an impact on games this season. And for that reason alone, that is the biggest offseason storyline for me is the return of fans to college football. I think that's actually a really good take. I, I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. I just think it's going to be such a welcome change because, listen, I was lucky enough to be able to go to the games last season. I'm really thankful for that. And when you're there, as much as I was happy about being there, it just wasn't the same. It, it just wasn't. And I'm the kind of guy, like, I don't exercise as much as I should, but when I do, sometimes I'll put, you know, the, the you know, ear, ear pods in and, you know, listen to some YouTube videos of crowds cheering and some of the great environments in the SEC. And I, I just love that kind of thing. I, I'm really excited about having that back. Connor, I think you bring up a pretty good point. But, Jeff, I want to go back to you here for a moment because you talked about name, image, likeness and the impact you think that's going to make on college football. What about Tennille Calvino had a good point on Facebook that she says the, the one-time transfer rule and the sort of aggressive expansion of the transfer portal, she thinks that's an even bigger deal than maybe anything. And I have to say, on the basis of the way the news cycle has kind of spun over the course of the last few months, 
I certainly understand where she's coming from on that. It seems like there was a stretch of time, like back during the spring, where, you know, when I was doing SEC news on my show, it was four or five transfer stories. This guy leaving this school, this guy coming to this school. Obviously, Georgia had been a part of that a, a little bit on both sides of that. As someone who covers recruiting on a daily basis, you know, I mean, wouldn't you say that the that the transfer stuff right now looms larger? The fact that if a player's unhappy, he may jet right away. That actually looms a little larger than the small handful of guys who actually are going to end up cashing in on some of this money stuff. Yeah, and, and I think Connor uh, – well, first of all, let me say this. I don't want to sound dismissive at all, but I agree with what you said about the playoff, Mike. I agree with what you said about the playoff, Brandon. But to me, it's not here yet. The year that it becomes valid, that's when it becomes the biggest offseason storyline for me. Um, it's just not immediate. Now, Connor touched on something that's very immediate. I think the, the, the name, image, and likeness is very immediate. I think to Neil's point, that's a very immediate story where – I, I think what it's going to do is I think it's going to change the way you look at recruiting, for example, because I think schools will maybe only sign like 20 players now every cycle. You know, they, they're allowed to sign up to 50 over a two year spread through like blue shirting and, you know, counting back counting or whatever. But what's going to change is you're going to see you're going to see a lot of schools, especially the power schools, and they're going to go do I want to use scholarship number 21 on a kid that won't play for us for two years? Or do I want to use scholarship number 21 on a starter that I get for one year or maybe two years? I think that's what you're going to see. You're going to see, um, you're going to see a lot more schools look at the transfer portal as maybe something that becomes 20% of their recruiting class, something 15 to 20% of their recruiting class. Those immediate one year stopgap players for the NFL. Let me give a shout-out to Steve Hyland on Facebook who says he's about to uh, pop open a finished long drink. Steve, I certainly appreciate that. I hope you have a great time with your beverage here this evening, and thanks for supporting those who support Dog Nation. Let me also say this here really quick. Who was it said this a uh, moment ago? Um, Tristan West says, and uh, Connor, I want to ask you about this. He says the 12-team playoff is going to ruin college football. So, Connor, let me ask you this, because I'm someone who wants to protect the history and the tradition, the heritage of college football as much as anybody does. I, I love that kind of stuff. I think it really matters. And, you know, I, I sort of want to defend it all at all costs. But when it comes to 12-team playoff, I actually don't really see anything that I feel like needs defending. If I mean, I'd be the first one I think would have my antenna up about this being maybe a problem for the sport. But I don't think that the uh, 12-team playoff has the risk of ruining college football. I think it's a change for the better and not a change for the worse. There are plenty of things around college football that I don't mind telling you. I think it potentially changes for the worse. But the 12-team playoff is kind of a evolution of, of customary practices that I'm not that scared about. Do you think one day I'll regret saying that? Now, there are probably three ba fan bases that are happy with the current setup. Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson, just on the way those seasons tend to go and the way those seasons tend to end. And for a majority of this sport, it is not a happy ending to the season. Most people aren't thrilled with the way the season ends. And you've already seen more and more controversy, arguably more than the BCS, of how the college football playoff selection factors into this. You have Oklahoma fans that have been mad, Ohio State fans, Georgia fans, uh, Notre Dame fans, Texas A&M fans. You have fans that are continuously more and more unhappy with this setup. And so, well, yes, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State are probably getting in in a 12-team playoff every year. You can put them in in pen. They're already doing that now. So I think with a 12-team playoff, what this does do, it opens it up more. It opens it up to more of the Iowa States, the Floridas, the Georgias most obviously, Notre Dames as well. 
And then from there, you do, I think, introduce a little bit of parody. You might see a year where an Ohio State gets tripped up in a quarterfinal game. A, a Clemson team has to play its way from a first-round spot. So I think because of all that, I think it's going to introduce more parody into the sport. And hey, if you're an Atlanta Hawks fan right now, look at look what parody did for you guys. Mm-hmm. Parody is a big reason the Atlanta Hawks are playing are up one zero in a conference finals right now because the talent in the NBA has been a little bit more dispersed, and the Brooklyn Nets have to get hurt. But that's besides the point. Parody, I think, does bring a new, renewed energy to certain sections of this country that might feel a little disenfranchised with how the fourteen playoff has gone so far. So I think the 12-team playoff is a welcome change and one I'm excited to see get implemented, even if it does end up taking as far as 2026. So I have one thing to say about kind of bringing up the Atlanta Hawks there. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds better than Shaq's impersonation, B.A. You got that for you. (laughs) All right. uh, We're going to shift into our cover more here. We'll take a few comments. We've actually been taking comments throughout the show. We probably won't do – uh, a ton on this. Uh, Jerry Popham says 12 team playoff ruining college football. He says he, he disagrees. He says with the NIL and shop yourself around because of getting uh, feelings hurt, that's what's going to ruin college football. So Jerry weighing in very strong there on that. Uh, Paul Moon says that he always ends up watching a lot kinds of random bowl games anyway. He says he's actually pretty excited about the 12 team playoff. And I guess, Mike, the one thing I'd say about that is, you know, I think you and I both probably look at some of these playoff teams sometimes and say, they played a pillow soft schedule. Do they really deserve to be in the playoff? And maybe sometimes a team like that even goes on to win the national championship. Clemson, for instance, you know, to force that team to play at least one more playoff game to validate their standing as the best in the country. You know, to me, that makes you feel better about whoever the national champion ends up being. They actually had to win at least one more round of games against, you know, theoretically playoff level competition to show they're worthy of all that. Yeah, you know, I'm not so sure Cincinnati wouldn't have beat Notre Dame. I mean, Notre Dame lost 34 to 10 to Clemson and still got in the playoff. I mean, that was all about the politics. And, the, you know, it's something we didn't mention that's a lot of fun is the idea of hosting a playoff game at Sanford Stadium. Or, you oh, know, there yeah. was the Florida would have had to play at Michigan in December. Can you imagine? They never schedule anybody outside of their state in non-conference that's worth a darn. So just to see some of those intra-conference battles, it's a chance, you know, for different teams to come in to say, who knows, maybe Florida and Georgia will play in each other's stadiums and a home playoff game, you know, something fun like that. Some aberration could happen. Uh, I do think you could see three teams, you know, maybe, maybe even four out of 12 teams from the SEC. What I like about it is that the top six ranked conference champions are guaranteed a slot. And I think it also makes sure that group of five gets represented. And I think it's time. I think it's time to do that. You know, that central Florida team that we talked about that Alabama would have opened with. There's some Alabama fans that might said, ah, we'd have beat those guys. Would you? Because they beat Auburn and Auburn beat Alabama by double digits. Now, granted it was a bowl game, but my point is you still got to show up and play. Now, LSU had to play a whale of a game to be at a UCF team. You know, and again, I bring up that Cincinnati team. They're so good. You know, Notre Dame plays Cincinnati next year. They went out and hired that defensive coordinator, that star defensive coordinator that schemed up, uh, you know, Munkin in that re- whatever that we want to call that offensive line, garbage that Georgia put on the game, put out there for that particular game. You know, Cincinnati was legit, man, and they were undefeated. And they didn't get a fair chance. And Notre Dame lost 34 to 10, and they got in because they're Notre Dame. So I like now that Notre Dame can't get a bye because they're not in a conference. They're not going to be one of those four teams. So that levels it up a little bit because that was an advantage that they didn't necessarily have to play 
a conference championship games. I think, B.A., that's why guys like you and I, traditionalists here, like it because the regular season still matters because you're playing for that buy, and that will be a big advantage. I see Connor's ready to pop. Well, you don't give Connor? Thomas Tyson a comment, but Connor, <laughs> go ahead and go first. The offensive line against Cincinnati, I think even using the word garbage, there's like a fairly realistic chance the offensive line Georgia tied it out there against Cincinnati is the same one they tied out there against Clemson with David Truss at left tackle, Sawyer at left guard, Warren Erickson at center, Justin Schaefer at right guard, and then Warren McClendon at right tackle. Well, it won't be their first time playing together, but the next time they go on the field, they'll have a whole offseason together. Uh, Foster Moss on uh, YouTube and uh, Thomas Tyson both bring up the same thing. Jeff, listen, I, I've been around this program for my entire life, you know, I'm, uh, and I've seen a lot of things. A home playoff game in December in Sanford Stadium, you know, the possibility of certainly cold weather, the you know the you know the best environment for a game that's ever happened, Jeff. I, I can't imagine anything I'd enjoy more than that, and I, and I mean that. Listen. I'm a Georgia fan that obviously craves seeing this team win a national championship the way everybody else does. I don't know that winning a national championship on a neutral field, just emotion, you can't control emotion, right? Emotion is just sort of a, just, just kind of a, a difficult thing to put your finger on. To actually see your team win a game in your own stadium and see the way that Athens would be just kind of taken over by playoff parano- you know, pandemonium, I, I can't imagine anything would eclipse that. You know, you know, Brendan, first of all, let me put a little recruiting secret sauce on this a little bit. Can you imagine having those games with recruits in the sands? Oh, like, yeah. like, like, especially those that haven't signed or maybe those that already have signed, especially the February period. Here's what I wonder about all this, though. Two things. And everybody wants to talk about the ripple waves and the ramifications. It's like like an Avengers movie when you do one thing and it changes the timeline in another direction. How many people are going to cancel and fire coaches and coordinators are going to hop? Uh, when you've got not not just a bowl game to wait for, but you got maybe one or two brackets of playoffs. Maybe the hiring still happened, but but those guys won't be going to work at the same amount of time. The second thing that comes to my mind with all these new changes to college football is you know how when Georgia lost to Texas, that was a bad offseason, but when Georgia beat Baylor, that was a good offseason, a good springboard, a good little after-dinner mint at the end of the season – Imagine if the, your your team loses in the playoff to a, a, a you know an also ran team or gets knocked off by a lower seed. All of a sudden, that's now a very bad taste in everybody's mouth for the off season. That's another ramification I see I see coming forth out of all these changes. We've gone late here. Anybody else got anything they want to say before we wrap up here today? Really good comments. Really fun conversation. The door is open for anybody to kind of say anything else they want to before we get ready to go. Down on my drop in, gentlemen. Um, all right. Thanks for being here for the uh, Cover Four Live. Appreciate you uh, being a part of this conversation. We'll be back again doing this very soon. A lot coming on the pages of dognation.com over the course of the next few days there as well. Really spirited comments, really fun discussion all the way around this evening. I'll see you tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. for Dog Nation Daily. Jeff Sintel stopping by for that. That's going to be a bunch of fun. A lot of recruiting stuff to talk to uh, Jeff about tomorrow. That's going to be a great time. Hope you're all getting ready for a great weekend. Enjoy it. Weather's been beautiful as of late, so hopefully you're soaking all of that up. We'll see you next time right here on Cover 4 Live.